Here, here's where we're headed this morning. Uh, just because Easter is a, a distant memory, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about kind of life after Easter. And specifically, we're going to hone in on one guy. And the guy's name is Peter. But before we get to Peter, I don't know if any of you guys have experienced this before. But sometimes when you read the Bible and you come across some of these characters, do you just feel like a little bit of guilt? Like, I, there is no way I can measure up to this guy. I mean, obviously we got Jesus. We know we can't measure up to Jesus. But even some of these Old Testament, New Testament, kings, prophets, apostles, I mean, sometimes I'll read them and I'll read these verses and these statements and they, these things they do and say, and I'm like, There's, I'm not even in the ballpark, all right? And I'm paid to be a Christian. All right? I'm nowhere close. I mean, the two guys who bring a, a, a little bit of guilt on my shoulders, all right? And, and Paul even says this. Paul says, I mean, this is an amazing verse. He says, imitate me. I mean, who here could just say this, you know, to their family in this church, just be like me, all right? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, all right? Here's the hardest thing, and I, and I want to do that. I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Jesus. But Paul makes some crazy statements where he almost reveals himself like he's spiritual Superman, all right? Here's something Paul says. He says, to live is Christ, to die is what? Is gain, all right? Now, now I've been walking with God for, for several years now, but there's never been a point in my life where I'm like, man, I'm just ready to go. And I'm excited about heaven. I can't wait for heaven. But I've never said like, man, I'd be totally cool with it just ending now. All right? And I'm just nowhere in the ballpark. I can't even imagine having that conviction and hearing that. I mean, there's sometimes when I read about the life of Jesus and he makes statements like, you got to love your enemies. And I think to myself, I'm like, I'm having a hard, hard enough time just loving my wife. Right? Loving the people I enjoy and like. And now you want me to love my enemies, people who dislike me? There's no way. All right, but thank God for Peter. All right? I mean, it's just amazing to me that a guy like Peter even slides in, all right, and gets Bible devoted to his life because Peter's the guy, it doesn't matter what your background is, what your personality is, all right, what you, your demeanor, your background, your ethnicity, I guarantee everyone in this room can identify in some way with Peter. I mean, he is just a normal, everyday guy. Here's what I love about Peter. There's sometimes when Peter is really bold and aggressive. We got any bold, aggressive people in the room? Okay, it doesn't look like We got a couple guys raising hands, bold, aggressive men, all right? There's a lot of times where Peter's just an alpha, right? He takes charge. But there's enough, often there's times where Peter withdraws, and he's a coward, and he's shy and he gets scared. All right, I won't ask you to raise your hand because you, you people wouldn't anyways, all right? <laughs> There's some times where Peter is very wise and insightful and he says amazing things. You're like, where did he get that from? But there's other times where Peter is just plain ignorant. And you're like, man, it is crazy that you would even say that. And so every one of us can identify with Peter. So here's what we're going to do just through the course of this sermon. I'm going to give you a verbal documentary of Peter's life. All right, now documentaries are cool now, especially because we got Netflix, especially us as men, we love to watch 30 for 30s, right? Documentaries are very manly now, but here's how every documentary works. All right, I'm specifically going off sports documentaries, but every documentary begins this way. You start with the high point, right? When the guy makes the big shot, when he wins the big game, I mean, it's the climax, right? It's the high point. It's the apex of his career. And then what do they do? They trace the athlete's life back to his humble beginnings. 
and they work their way forward, they progress to this crowning moment. So we're going to do the same thing with Peter's life. We're going to start when he's at his crowning kind of top moment, and then we're going to work our way backwards. So here is Peter's crowning moment. It's in Acts 2. So if you could open your Bibles to Acts 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. And this occurs on a day called Pentecost. So read along with me. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's the first thing you got to know. This occurs on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was actually a holiday. It was a celebration. And penny means 50. So this day actually occurred 50 days after the Holy Week or the Lord's Supper. All right, so this is actually a, a time that's pretty close on the calendar to where we are right now. And so what would happen, because the Jews at this time lived in a primarily agricultural society, is Pentecost was really a harvest celebration. They would celebrate the fact that the crops were coming in. They were about to have a lot of food. And so this particular Pentecost was 50 days after Jesus had gone to the cross and three days later resurrected from the dead. And so the altogether, the people that we're looking at are Jesus' disciples, his followers, those who believed in him that he truly was the Messiah. It was about 120 people in all, and they're believers. And they're in this one particular location. They're in this room, and they're all together. But you can imagine what they're feeling right now. Some of them are probably really excited. They've heard reports of Jesus' resurrection. Some are very confused because their leader you know, was just crucified. So they're wondering, what's going to happen to me? Everyone is almost on the edge of their seat, just wondering, what's going to happen next? What's our next move? What's our next step? But together, here's what they're doing. They're praying, they're singing, they're praising God, and they're studying the Word. And then all of a sudden, suddenly the Spirit moves. And essentially what happens, revival breaks out. I know there's a lot of different connotations and ideas that come to your mind when you hear that word revival. But in its most basic, simple form, revival is simply this. It's when the Holy Spirit moves within the church. And so that's what happens. And it affects all their senses. They hear something that like is, is like a wind. They see something that is like tongues of fire. They start speaking in different languages. And so just to give you a little context, because this was such a big celebration and holiday, you would literally have people coming from across the world to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. So if you keep on reading in Acts 2, we're not going to take time to do that. I would encourage you to read the rest of the chapter. But here's what you'll notice. All right. A bunch of people hear this noise that is like a wind. And this crowd is truly international. You have people from Asia and Africa and the Middle East and the Mediterranean, and they're drawn by this sound. And so they come closer and closer to the epicenter of where this noise is coming out. And what they see is these 120 believers who are Galilean. They were uncultured, all right, uneducated people. What are they doing? They're telling or speaking in their language the mighty works of God. 
So literally what they're doing is they're proclaiming the mega deeds of God in another language. And so probably what these people were doing is they were starting in the Old Testament. And they were working their way all the way up to Jesus. And they were boldly proclaiming in a non-native language the works of God. Revival breaks out. And so I just want to pull out two quick points from this one snapshot we get of the early church. The first is this. Do you notice where revival begins? See, oftentimes as the church, we pray and we think, Lord, bring revival out there, right? To the celebrities, to Hollywood, to the drug dealers, to the drunks, all right? To the people who need it, the lost and broken people, the people who are out there hanging out on the square late at night. But what do we see in Acts 2? Where does revival begin? Revival technically doesn't begin out there. It begins in here. It begins in the church. More specifically, it begins within King's Chapel. It begins within campus outreach. It begins within your family. It begins within your Bible study, your discipleship group. Even more specifically, it begins right here in my own heart. Because we read this snapshot. We see the boldness of these 120 men and women, and we say, I want that, right? I want that fire. I want that passion. All right? Do you know the path to get it? All right, before the gospel is proclamation, it's celebration. These people were enjoying. They were glorifying the work that God had done in their own lives. See, the gospel first has to affect your own heart before it affects other people. Here's the second thing we see. This is the first impression This is the first impression we get of the New Testament church. And look, we we are really big on first impressions in our culture, aren't we? I mean, for for, for a lot of you young people who have been on a first date recently, I mean, guys start doing crazy things, all right, when they know they're about to take a lady out for the first time, right? They find the polo, right, that doesn't have wrinkles, all right? And they, they might even iron their shorts or their slacks, They do an extra swipe of deodorant, right? They pick up the car. Or they do crazy things like holding the door open for the girl, moving her chair back and forth. They pick up the tab, you know, when they eat dinner. Why do we do that? All right, because when we go to that date, right, when we send our kid to their first day of school, when we show up on the job for the first day, what we want to do is project a certain image of who we want to be, right? This is how I want the world to view me. This is how I want my boss to see me. This is what I want this girl to think of me, right? Our insecurity oftentimes drives our desire to make a good first impression. But this isn't so with the early church. See, this first impression we get of the church is not an insecure church trying to project a certain image. No, this is who God intended us. This is who God intended King's Chapel to be originally, right? This is the blueprint. This is the final product. And here's what, I, here, here's what we see. See, oftentimes, I know there's a lot of people that are probably visiting this church, right, checking out this church. If you've ever engaged in that process, all right, you know that when we walk into a church, we like to size the church up, right? We like to put the church in a box, assign certain labels to the church. So when we swing those doors open and we walk through the sanctuary, what's the first thing we think to ourselves? I think this is a uh, contemporary church, right? Or I think this is an old school church, a traditional church. Or we might look at the congregation and we say, oh, this is a black church. Or this is a white church. Or this is a church that's for believers. Or maybe this is a seeker-sensitive church. But do you see how we do this? 
Uh, we embrace this spiritual dichotomy when we say this church is either this or that. But what do we see in Acts 2? All right? Is, is this church passionate or reverent? Y'all help me out. Come on. It's both, right? Yes. All right, is it a black church or a white church? It's both. It's international. Is it full of believers or seekers? It's both. All right? This is who we were intended to be. And so here's what happens. All these people that are drawn to the noise, they ask this question in verse 12. They say, what does this mean? Here's what they're saying. What the heck is going on? This is crazy. But others were mocking and they said they were filled with new wine. So some guys are just throwing stones and saying, I don't know what's happening. They're just drunk. But this is a defining moment, isn't it? You've got hundreds of thousands of internationals pouring into this church. You have a sound like a wind. You have tongues like fire. You have people wondering what is going on. Please explain this. You've got other people just hurling accusations and saying, oh, they're just drunk. So what do we need in this moment? All right. What do we need? We need somebody to come to the pulpit, right? Somebody to step to the plate. Someone to explain what's going on. Now, let me ask you this. If you were in charge of picking that person, what, what type of man would you choose? Uh, you probably want someone that's pretty tactful, a great communicator, high character, high integrity, seminary trained, all right, just, just a wall of degrees to explain what's going on. And guess who steps forward? It's Peter, all right? Peter's the man, all right? So this was his defining moment, and now we're going to start working our way back. So we're going to look at Jesus, or Jesus calling Peter to be a disciple. This is in John 1, 42, all right? So before Peter was Peter, he actually had another name. Hang with me. His name was Simon, and he had an occupation. He was a fisherman. He was a blue-collar guy. He was a hard worker. He had calluses on his hands, all right? And Jesus and Peter had a relationship. This isn't their first interaction, but in John 1, Peter's brother, Andrew, brings him to Jesus. And here's how it goes. It says, he, or Andrew, brought Peter, him, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now, just keep in mind, this is not their first interaction, all right, that'd be a little strange if it was Jesus walking around renaming people. You know, can you imagine meeting Jesus? Hey, hey, I'm Ben. No, I, f- I feel like you're a Steve. Let's go with Steve. That's not what's going on here. All right. So, but what Jesus does is he looks at him and he says, from this day forth, I'm going to rename you and I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you Peter. Do you know what Peter means? It means the rock. And that's a great nickname right there, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you love for Jesus to look at you and say, I see a rock. You are solid. You are firm. I mean, men, don't we have a desire to, to, to be the rock for our family? I mean, doesn't everyone in this room just want to be solid and not crack under pressure? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, from this day forth, you'll be the rock. And look, we, we do this in our culture too. We give nicknames, all right? I work with football players. All right, football teams are infamous for having nicknames. But what are nicknames? They, in a sense, they try to encapsulate or define who you are. So look, I've been with the West Georgia football team for seven years. All right, I played football before that. Every football program I've ever been a part of always has one guy with the nickname Big Country. All right, it's just the truth, especially in the South. 
So you can imagine what big country is like. On our team at West Georgia, he's really big and he's really country. He's always got a dip in, all right? He's always got the camo hat, all right? He's always talking about these hunting trips he's going on, and he's just a big guy. We actually recently just had a guy tra- uh, transfer to our team, and he introduces himself as Stank, all right? Believe it or not, Stank. I still haven't, you know, built up the courage to ask him how we got that nickname, but that's not one you want. But, but here's the idea. Jesus says, I rename you. Here's your nickname. You are the rock. And see, when we name people, all right, whether it's our own children, whether it's you young girls who get your first car, and you're like, I got to name my car, right? We like to do that. Uh, whether you name your pet, there's a reason why we name things. And here's what we're doing, all right? We are declaring ownership and affection. Do you see that? And that's what Jesus is doing to Peter. He is saying, Peter, I own you. You are mine. Follow me. But also, I desire you. I'm delighted in you. I have set my affection upon you. And from this moment forth, Peter follows Jesus. And so from from here on, every time you get a list of disciples, guess whose name is number one? All right, it's Peter. Because he's the alpha, right? He's the top dog. And he's bold and he's aggressive. If you jump forward, I'm just going to start just rolling through some of these stories. So don't feel like you've got to flip in your Bible. But in Matthew 16, there's this moment where rumors are circulating about Jesus. Everyone's trying to figure out who is Jesus. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Disciples, who do you think I am? And so who's the first person to speak up? Who's the bold, aggressive leader? Peter steps forward and he says, Hey, Jesus, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. Ding, ding, ding. He gets it right. He passes the test. Wisdom, insight. But here's the thing about Peter. Even when he's right, he's wrong. He should have just stopped while he was ahead. Because the next thing Jesus does is he shares how he says, Look, yeah, you're right, Peter. I'm a Messiah, but I'm not a conquering Messiah. I'm not a physical Messiah. I'm not an earthly king. I'm a suffering Savior. I'm a suffering Messiah. And that doesn't sit well with Peter. So what does Peter decide to do to his Messiah, his Savior, his King, his God? It says this. It says this. Is that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. All right, now this is just discipleship 101. This might be your first Sunday at church, all right? But this this is pretty basic, but never rebuke Jesus, all right? It doesn't go well, all right? The, the, The Son of God just doesn't mess up. It doesn't matter what you feel. And so Jesus looks at Peter and what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. All right, can you imagine going home after hearing that from Jesus? All right, your wife has the crock pot going. She's setting the table. Hey, honey, how was your day? Well, Jesus called me Satan today, right? I mean, that's just not going to go over well, but that's what happens. But you would think, right? I mean, if Jesus calls me Satan, right, that's going to humble me. That's going to slow my roll. I'm going to check what I say. I'm going to think before I speak. Not with Peter. Because the next thing we see is that Peter's in a boat with the disciples. And there's a storm. And they look into the distance. And Peter sees someone. He sees Jesus walking on water. And so bold, aggressive Peter, what does he do? He He says, Jesus, I want to walk to you. And so he hops out that boat displays amazing strength, amazing courage, and he focuses his eyes on Jesus, and one step after another, he comes closer and closer to Jesus. But then what happens next? The waves 
get bigger. The waves get louder. And Peter's gaze shifts from Jesus to the waves and he starts sinking and he cries out and he says, save me. And it says that Jesus just reaches down. I mean, literally, Peter was right beneath his feet and he pulls him up. But here's the moral of the story. Here's what we see. When Peter's eyes are fixed on Jesus, when when the gaze of his heart is set upon Jesus, he's a rock. He's solid. He's firm. He can walk on water. But the moment... His gaze shifts to the waves and the world around him. He's a pebble. He's broken. And so we're going to fast forward, all right, to Easter weekend since we just celebrated it. The Holy Week, the Passover meal. The disciples are together. They're about to have this holy and solemn and ceremonial meal. So what do you think's on Peter's mind? Before they walk into the door and Jesus prepares this meal, you know what Peter's talking about? Who the greatest disciple is? And he's letting the guys know, I'm the top dog. I'm number one. When they find their seats, Peter's trying to jockey. He's trying to jostle. He's trying to get right next to Jesus and sit in the place of honor. Somehow, someway, he gets pushed to the other side. And and somewhere over the course of the dinner, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, they or you will all fall away. Right? And Peter hasn't learned his lesson. Because that doesn't sit well with them. He's got to say something. So you know what he says to Jesus? He says, Jesus, they may all fall away because of you. I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Does Peter accept it? Does Peter take it in? Does Peter say, oh, your Lord, I don't want this to happen, but I believe you know. He says, even if I must die, I will never deny you, Jesus. And so he still hasn't learned his lesson. And so they leave the Passover feast. And it's about 9 p.m. And Jesus, as he feels the cup of wrath, the cross approaching, what does he desire? He desires to be alone with his boys, with his disciples, and simply pray to God. And so he walks over to the Garden of Gethsemane about 9 p.m. And Jesus brings Peter, James, and John And even though Jesus from day one knew the plan was, all right, he came to give his life as ransom for many, in a sense, he's feeling it. He's tasting it for the first time. It's kind of like this. I I, I did a wedding last night for a former West Georgia coach. And this wedding has been on the books. It's been circled in the calendar for months and months. But the day before the wedding, even though this groom knew it was coming, decided it was coming. He picked the day. What do you think he was feeling the night before the wedding? All right? All kinds of emotions. Nerves, excitement, anxiety, worry, a little bit of fear. All right? He was feeling it. He was tasting it for the first time. Similarly, Jesus, all right, this day has been circled on the calendar, but he's feeling the weight, the pressure for the first time. And he wants his boys to be with him, his brothers to pray with him. And so he says, stay with me and pray with me for a while. And as Jesus goes deeper into the garden, he literally collapses because he's so weak. He's so broken. While he's on the ground, on the dirt, just prostrate, the capillaries right in his arms bust and they mix with sweat and he starts bleeding drops of blood. And he turns around and he looks to his disciples, the men he loves. And what are they doing? They're asleep. Peter's asleeping. Three times Jesus wakes them up 
to pray with them, and they continue to fall asleep. And so Jesus makes this statement. He says, Peter, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. So finally they emerge. They emerge from the garden. And what's waiting upon Jesus? Another one of his disciples, Judas. But he's flanked by over a hundred Roman soldiers. Judas approaches Jesus. He kisses him on on the cheek. All right, and he's betrayed. He's handcuffed. He's locked up. And once again, I mean, you can only imagine what's going on in Peter's hearts. Jesus' words are probably ringing in his ear. He's probably feeling, i got to come through. I can't fall away. So what does Peter do? He reaches for a sword. He goes over to the high priest's servant, and he chops his ear off. All right? And, 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 and here's a little tip. Look, Jesus, what, or excuse me, Peter, he wasn't aiming for the ear. All right? He wasn't just trying to slice a little bit of his lobe right off. He was aiming for his head. All right, once again, what do we see? Peter still doesn't get it. He doesn't understand all right, the true nature of Jesus' kingdom and the type of Savior that he is. And so Jesus heals the servant's ear. Jesus is taken away to trial where charges are drummed up and he's accused of being a, re- a rebel and an insurrectionist. And all the disciples, just as Jesus predicted, they flee except for one. Peter goes to the trial. He's probably doggedly committed that he won't turn his back on Jesus. And so it's about midnight, and there's a hot, low fire. And while Jesus is in trial, Peter sits by the fire. And he's approached by a little servant girl. And she says, don't you know Jesus? Don't you spend time with Jesus? And what does Peter say? He says, I never knew this man. Not for one moment, not for one day did I know this man. Another servant girl approaches, asks the same question. I never knew this man. A bystander, a stranger, a random dude approaches Peter. I never knew this man. And so at 3 a.m., the rooster crows, and Jesus' words are ringing in Peter's ears, and he breaks. He breaks. He weeps bitterly. He calls out curses on his own head. And guys, this this is a dramatic moment. But this is the rock. This is the rock. I mean, he's prideful. He's passionate. He's scared. He's a coward. You know what? He sounds a lot like us. And so here's the question you're probably answering, man. Is this rock really that solid? Is he really that strong? Is he really that firm? Maybe Jesus just messed it up. Maybe just Jesus picked the wrong guy. I mean, what did Jesus seeing this guy. And and before we answer this question, here's what I want to remind us really quick. See, I'd be willing to bet there's a lot of people in this room that desire to impact and influence people spiritually just like Jesus. Will that be as a parent, as a discipler, as, as a coach, as a teacher? And look, if you've engaged in any sort of ministry, any sort of spiritual influence, you've probably felt this, all right? Am I really making a difference? Is my kid, is this person, is this girl I talk to, are they really changing? Are they really making progress? We meet every week. We talk every evening. We're reading this book. We're studying this scripture. I feel like I'm doing the right things, but this person just isn't changing. And here's the only point I want to make. Jesus empathizes. 
Right? Jesus was the perfect discipler. Jesus was the perfect spiritual father. Jesus was the perfect teacher. He gave Peter the goods. He led him correctly. He trained him the right way. He followed the book. And there are just highs and lows if we decide to engage in ministry. Ministry brings just amazing joy, but it also opens our hearts to amazing just pain. And we see this in Jesus' life. But luckily the story doesn't end here. Because Jesus goes to the cross. He dies for our sins. He's resurrected on the third day. And he appears again to his disciples. So if you, if you read in John 21, big bold letters, one section begins this way. Jesus appears to his disciples. And guess what Peter is doing when Jesus appears to him? All right? He's fishing. And here's the thing. Peter didn't go fishing just to clear his mind. He didn't go fishing because it was a hobby. Do you remember what Peter did before he was a disciple? He was a fisherman. So here's what Peter is doing. He's gone back to his original occupation. He's left the ministry. All right? He's defeated. He's fearful. He has completely retreated. And while he's fishing from his boat, he looks on the shore and he sees Jesus walking down the beach. And so look, some things never change. Guess who's the first off the boat? Peter once again flings himself and he starts swimming to the shore. And Jesus is is waiting on him. And here's what we see. But before Jesus makes this leader, and more importantly, before God makes a man, he breaks a man. And Peter would have been unbearable if he was never broken. And so what we see is that he has been broken by his sin and Jesus is about to restore him. And so Jesus looks Peter in the eye and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. And Jesus repeats that question two more times. He does it three times in all. And there's a reason for that. Because Peter denied Jesus three times. And so in this moment, on the beach, Jesus just, he doesn't drum up the past. He just says, Peter, follow me. Follow me. And so on the beach, Peter experiences not only the resurrecting power of Jesus, but also the redeeming and the forgiving power of Christ. And here's what I love. All right? Jesus pursued Peter. I mean, it's almost like Jesus was eager. He was fired up. It delighted him to go pursue his betrayer and the man who denied him. Jesus is eager to restore believers to himself. All right? And, and he doesn't hold our, 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 our mistakes and our betrayal over our head. No, Jesus restores him to leadership. Right? He gives him ownership. He gives him power. He builds the church upon Peter. And so in a sense... What I've just reminded you of, this is Peter's testimony, right? I mean, if Peter were were to stand on stage, he probably would have said something similar. It probably would have been a whole lot cooler. But have you thought about this? All right. Peter's lowest moment when he betrays Jesus three times. what, What other disciples were with him? He was by himself. What what other authors of the gospel were with Peter? None. So if this story makes it in the gospel accounts, if this story makes it in the Bible, all right, the Word of God, who had to tell this story? Y'all help me out. Peter. So what does this tell us? All right? In Peter's testimony, he is open about his sin. All right? He doesn't glorify it. 
But he is open and real about his mistakes and the fact that he has deserted Jesus. He doesn't clean it up. He doesn't edit it. He doesn't just give himself the highlights. And so here's the thing, especially in a church like King's Chapel, I know there are, you know, there are, there, there are a lot of people with a lot of different stories. Some people tend to identify more with the prodigal, right? The wild and crazy life before they, before they knew Christ. Some people identify more with the older brother, right? The, the more moral lives. And I've heard people sometimes say, because I never really fell into sin, or because I never had this wild and crazy lifestyle, I don't have a good testimony. Has anybody ever felt that before? Like, I never did drugs. I never got drunk. I never robbed a bank. I don't have this dramatic conversion moment. I don't have the Paul testimony. I, I don't have a good testimony. Well, here's the reality. All right, there is no such thing as a bad testimony. There is no such thing as an inferior or second-rate testimony because there's no such thing as inferior or second-rate grace. Do you understand that? All right, there's no bad testimony because there's no bad salvation. And it doesn't matter if you were reckless and wild, all right, in sinning in outwardly rebellious and grievous ways, or if your sin was more refined and it was moral and it was legalistic, or maybe you come to, came to Christ at a young age. The reality is this. It doesn't matter who you are, what your past is like. We all deserted Christ, just like Peter. And we were all pursued by Christ and restored to Him. All right? There's no bad testimony because there's no bad salvation. Because we don't serve a bad Savior. And so let's go back to Pentecost. Let's go back to the book of Acts. We'll pick up in chapter 2, verse 14. We see the path to the pulpit. We see the path to this divining moment. So how does Peter respond? What happens next? It says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All right? This is the first New Testament church service. This is Peter's first, test, first sermon. And it says right here that he lifts his voice. He's screaming. He's yelling. He's proclaiming. And he says, point number one. I love how this sermon begins. He says, we're not drunk. All right, you know it's a good sermon when you've got to remind people that we're sober. All right? And then he does what, what, what most of you guys would do. He opens his Bible. He opens his scroll. All right, he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the book of Joel, right? That's what you would do. All right, and he goes to Joel, and he says this. You know what's going on? You know what's happening? See, Joel talked about this hundreds of years ago. He prophesied about this, and God is pouring out his spirit. And that word pour out, it doesn't mean drizzle. It doesn't mean a couple drops doesn't mean what we're experiencing outside right now. It means tropical storm. It means hurricane. It means God's just pouring it all out. And Peter even says, hey, remember this? Remember when Jesus ascended into heaven? And he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness. Peter's saying that day is today. It's coming true. And so if you jump down into verse 22, Peter's sermon continues. And here's what he says next. He says, Men of Israel, 
hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what's point number two? Point number one, we're not drunk. Hey, remember Joel, point number two, what did he start preaching? Hey, he starts preaching the gospel, right? I mean, he's fired up. Now keep in mind, this is a guy 50 days prior deserted Jesus. Said, I don't know Jesus. I've never been with Jesus. What now? He says, I'm screaming Jesus. All right? Hundreds of thousands of people. I'm yelling Jesus. He doesn't flee. He explains who Jesus is. He talks about his life. He talks about his death. He looks at this people, an international crowd from Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and he says, you crucified Jesus. What's Peter trying to say? He's not saying you literally drove the stakes into his hand, but here's the theological point he's making, is that we're all sinners, and it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter what century you occupy, our sin put Jesus on the cross. And so here's the first step. If you want to be a rock, if you want to be a spiritual leader, you know where it begins? It begins with repentance. It begins with the realization, the conviction that when I sin, I didn't just break a rule, I broke God's heart. I crucified Jesus. Jesus took my punishment on the cross. So here's the question. How did Peter change? How did he go from betraying, denying, deserting Jesus to becoming the rock? To becoming this alpha leader, bold and aggressive? Because this trend continues. This trajectory continues. All right, Peter gives this amazing sermon, but he continues to live in a bold, not a perfect, but bold manner. If you jump all the way to Acts 4.13, this time Peter's preaching again. And it's not in front of people who are just asking, what does this mean? Explain this, Peter. No, he's standing before Roman officials. And he's on trial. And these men have the power to end Peter's life. But it's really amazing. Acts 4.13 says this. Now when they, this is the Roman leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What's the secret? What's the secret sauce? What's the hidden ingredient? When Peter's eyes were on Jesus, when he was consumed with Jesus, he was a rock. He was bold. He was strong. He was who God intended him to be. And I love this because these men look at Peter and they say, look, you're not educated. We know that. You're pretty common. You're pretty normal. I mean... You, you, you almost, you, you're not Ivy League, you're not elite. You might even be from a, ta- a little small church in a town called Carrollton. But there's something different about you. And I can't put my finger upon it. You've got courage, you've got no power that no degree can give you. Alright? And it's because you've been with Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, if you want that same power in your life, if you want your family, in a sense, to be built on the rock, if you want your discipleship group or those you minister to to be spiritually strong, if we want this church 
in a sense, to be a rock in this community? What's the secret? What is going to give you that strength? It's not the curriculum. It's not a certain book. It's not a certain worship style. All right? It's the presence of Jesus. It's truly knowing, understanding, experiencing the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so this trend continues. In Peter's first sermon, in Peter's life, but also in Peter's death. Because did you know this? Or does anybody know how Peter's life ends? It's not written in the Bible, but church historians agree that Peter was crucified. But when Peter went to his death and he found out that he was going to be crucified the same way that his Savior, right, his suffering Savior died, you know what Peter said? He said this. He says, I don't deserve, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. He said, therefore, crucify me upside down. So have you ever thought about this? All right, in a strictly Hollywood, Braveheart, gladiator type way, Peter died a more heroic death than Jesus? I mean, Peter looks death in the eye and he says, crucify me, but don't just kill me. Kill me upside down, right? I mean, that's a Hollywood movie. All right, that's going to pack out the theaters. But see, when Jesus went to his cross... Jesus broke. Jesus wept. Jesus came undone. And Peter was unbroken. In a strictly Hollywood sense, all right, Peter died in a better way than Jesus. But there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Because Jesus faced something that Peter didn't on his cross. See, Peter swung the sword right outside the garden, but Jesus was pierced by the sword. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and our sin. See, Peter deserted Jesus at the trial, but Jesus was deserted not only by his disciples and his followers and his family, but on the cross, Jesus proclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even his own father deserted him on the cross. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus forgave and restored Peter three times. Peter received the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. On the cross, Jesus gave up his spirit and said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And so if you're sitting here today and you're just thinking to myself, I have deserted Jesus, right? I've run away from him. I've ignored him. I live as if he doesn't exist. Here's what you need to know. Jesus desires He longs, he wants to restore you. He doesn't just want to remove your sin. He wants to restore you and put you in a position of influence and leadership. He doesn't just want to save you, he wants to use you. He did this with his denier, Peter. And so if you want to be this rock, maybe for your family, maybe for your church, you want to be counted on and relied upon, you want to be solid. Here's the secret. All right, focus my eyes, focus my heart on the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. I don't become a rock through my own ability, through my own effort, through just gritting my teeth. We're about to sing a song, I think it explains it perfectly, but here's what the hymn says. It says, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for normal, 
everyday guys who say ignorant things, who get scared and withdraw, who sometime in their own insecurity try to dominate and control things. But God, I love your relationship with Peter. You weren't frustrated with Peter. You weren't disgusted by Peter. You delighted in Peter. And you made him into a rock. So God, I pray this story would give us hope. And God, as thankful as I am for an example like Peter, I'm more thankful for you. I'm more thankful for you sending your son to die on my behalf. Lord, I pray that we would be individuals and families and we would be a church that is a spiritual rock. Not not that we're tough and act like we have it all together, but we just focus our eyes and our heart upon you. We pray this in your name. Amen.